Who is wise? He that learns from everyone. Who is powerful? He that governs his passions. Who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? Nobody. A quote from Benjamin Franklin. Have you ever been so mad that you clenched your fists, you gritted your teeth, you started to turn red, and if steam could really come out your ears, it would have. I think so many of us have been in that situation at least once or twice in our lives, some maybe more. <laughs> now, when the world says somebody comes up and pushes you, what do you do? You push back, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. When someone wrongs us, we plan, we connive, we're, oh, just wait and see, I'm going to get them back. You know, there was a story of a guy and his girlfriend that were at a bar, and then some random guy comes up, and he grabs his girlfriend right in the butt. Now, I think they should have just turned the other cheek. I know, bad pun, bad pun. But what ends up happening? The guy goes over, right, and he grabs him, and one shot, bam, knocks the guy out. Now, this is a tough one, right, guys? I mean, here it is. We want to preserve our honor, the honor of our wives, our girlfriends, and everything. Absolutely, we're protectors. But do you want to know the rest of the story? He was arrested. He was thrown into jail. He was prosecuted. He now has a felony on his record. That means no firearms. That means he's not even allowed to vote. Well, in 48 of our states, you can still vote in Maine and Vermont and, of course, Washington, D.C. Go figure. Heck, half of our Congress wouldn't be able to vote if that were the case. But our hero, he's got his honor. Maybe he should have just taken the advice of Jesus. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. We're going to see this today in verses 27 and 28. Now, it's not easy to do exactly the opposite of what our flesh wants us to do. You know, Paul says it this way in Romans 7, 15 through 18. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Living the Christian life can be hard at times, can it? But wait, Adam, you mean that as a Christian, it's not all rainbows and unicorns? I think anybody who's been a Christian longer than a day knows the answer to that. But what if we recognize the challenges that lie ahead? Stay in the will of God. And as James said, when it comes to trials, we count it all as joy. Then we'll store up crowns in heaven, eternal rewards, 
that will not only bless us for just a short time here on earth, but for the rest of eternity in his kingdom with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death. But doing the right thing, not in the world's eyes, but our Savior will bring life. The title of today's message, Choose Life. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we do want to choose life. We want to choose you. We want to choose a life with you inside of each and every one of us. Lord, because it's you that we need to turn to. Every time that old man rears its ugly head, every time our flesh wants to get the better of him, Lord, in and of itself, Lord, we can't fight against these things. We want to give in to these things, these passions, these lusts, the sin inside of each and every one of us, our blackened hearts. But God, with you by our side, when we look to you, when you fill us with your spirit, we're able to fight back that old man, put him back in his place where he belongs. Lord, even Paul struggled with it. So today, we come before you humbly. We ask you for your help. We pray that you would go ahead and open our hearts and open our minds to your word and the things that you would tell us, because these are instructions specifically to us. God, I pray, etch your word upon our hearts, and if there's anything of man, let it fall upon deaf ears. Know how much we love you, we thank you, we sing your praises, and it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. Is there anybody who needs a Bible? If you do, just read your, raise your hand, and one of the ushers will come around and give that to you. We'll be starting in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea. And Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out of him and healed them all. Then he lifted his eyes towards his disciples and said, so we're starting with where we finished last week. And it's kind of to bring everybody back up to speed. Now, what we're about to read uh, is what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has already chosen the 12 from among the very large group of disciples and those followers who went on to become his apostles. And the popularity of Jesus is apparent at this time. We see people coming from all over Israel, but not just Israel, literally all over the lands and adjoining nations in order to hear him speak, but also to receive the teachings with a dynamic spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the power to heal also the power to deliver from demons. Now, I mean, I've never been demon oppressed or, excuse me, demon possessed. Anybody here? Anyone? Okay, good. But I can't even imagine the type of horror to be able to have something like that, an entity inside of you. I mean, where do you take that? Where do you take demon possession? Where do you go for demon oppression? Well, I can tell you where I took it to jail. 
I'm sitting in the office and I'm working on one of my reports and my sergeant comes out and he says, hey, he says, Adam, he goes, I'm going to go grab something to eat. You want to go? And I said, nah, I really got to finish up this report. And he goes, okay. He goes, well, I'm going to hit in and out. If you want anything, just give me a call. I said, all right, that's cool, Sarge. Thank you. So I'm there and about two minutes later, I hear over my radio, hey, Rodman, come out the side door. So I walk out the side door and here is this lady, literally holding on to the key punch pad in order to get into our gate. She's on 15 different types of drugs. And I'm like, I really didn't need one more report. But, <laughs> all right, stand up, turn her around, click, click with the handcuffs, walk her into the office, sat her down at a chair, and we have these eye bolts that we go ahead and we chain them to. So she's literally sitting in the chair, chained to her handcuffs to the floor. And she's all, really... Is this necessary? Now, granted, she's five foot nothing, okay, 195 pounds soaking wet. And I'm like, ma'am, it's just policy. So I'm going through and I'm asking her all of the booking questions. And one of the things that I like to do is witness. I would witness to those individuals that I was about to take to jail. After all, I had a very captive audience. <laughs> However, one of the things that I would always say to try to elicit a godly conversation is I'd say, you know what? You might think that this is the worst day of your life. Here it is. You're sitting in handcuffs. You're on your way to jail. I think somebody's watching over you. What do you think about that? And many times it has fostered a conversation, and we've talked about Jesus and God. I prayed for individuals down at the jail. However, this time, remember what I said. I think someone's watching over you. What do you think about that? All of a sudden, this 95, soaking wet, nothing, stands up. Don't talk to me about God. Oh. And I looked at her, and I said, and that's why you're chained to the floor. <laughs> there was somebody else inside of her. And it was crazy. And I believe that drugs can open up that portal, that doorway into that spirit realm that we're not supposed to see or go. Now, I delivered this lady to jail. But if you were demon-possessed, where would you go? Where could you go? There's only one place for deliverance, and that's to Jesus. Amen? They knew it. And because those reports were going out throughout the land, they were coming to see Jesus. They were coming to see Jesus because they knew that's where they could be saved. And that brings us to our first point. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. I encouraged you last week to have a relationship with Jesus. If we are seeking him, if we're communing with him, then when those hard times come, those trials and tribulations come, and they will come, come to Jesus. It's the only place that you will find deliverance, comfort, and rest. Remember Matthew 11.30? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we spoke last week about how many people believe that this was an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. However, it should be called the Sermon on the Plain, or as it says in our Bibles, right, to a level place. Um, however, it's named, um, 
It's named after the fact that we're told in verse 17 that Jesus was standing on a level place, not the side of a mountain. And some people and scholars, they try to uh, mix it around and say, oh, well, they, they make it work. And they say, well, it was a level place on the mountain. See, this was Luke's version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But clearly, in, in the description of where the sermon is given, it's different. Plus, not to mention, there's some major differences between the two. Yes, there's a lot of similarities, but major differences in this sermon from the Sermon on the Mount that we see in Matthew. Now, today, we live with the blessings of having sermons be recorded and being able to go online and listen to sermons pretty much 24-7. Today, the accessibility to sermons and or Bible teachings, great Bible teachings, but we've got that. But in those days, there weren't any of those things. There wasn't the Facebook. There wasn't the YouTube that we could just go ahead and search on. So when Jesus teaches there at the Sea of Galilee, the Sermon on the Mount teaches those truths. It isn't like we go, okay, well, we got that one in the record for Matthew. No need to, no need to say that one any longer, right? No, this was only a very small number of people that got to listen to that sermon in that environment. So, of course, as Jesus goes around, he's going to take this, these truths and give, deliver them again and again and again and declare them over and over as part of his ministry as he would be led by the Holy Spirit and reach different people at different places at different times. So some of the points and similarities between Luke's and Matthew's account. First of all, number one, both begin with a series of Beatitudes. Number two, both contain Jesus' teaching on loving one's enemy. And number three, both end with the parable of the two builders. Uh, we'll get to that next week, God willing. The theme of the sermon is a disciple's walk. And we're going to talk about that importance and expound on it in just a little bit. The audience for the sermon consisted of both disciples and, it says, the great multitude. However, Jesus did not restrict his remarks simply to those who believed, but to anyone who was willing to listen. Now, repetition, as we said, is the mother of all skill. And it's necessary in virtue of the lack of technology. So again, it's important for us to realize that the sermon is directed and or who it's directed to. And it specifically says in verse 20 that it's directed to his disciples, to us Christians. The sermon is not a sermon telling the world how it's supposed to live and that if we live proper and right in God's eyes and do that as a, as a, as a uh, uh, regular thing within our life, that it warrants entry into heaven one of these days. No, this sermon is directed to Christians and it tells us that because we are Christians, this is how we are to live as representatives of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, uh, imagine God calls us as ambassadors of Christ, which he has. To be a Christian is to represent God, to represent Christianity in the world that's all around us. Now, imagine give, being given this responsibility, the privilege, but then having no instruction at all from God in how we're supposed to conduct ourselves or conduct ourselves and be those ambassadors that we're called to be. 
and how to properly represent the kingdom of God. So this is the one very thing that this sermon does. It goes ahead and says, the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible through the obedience of God's people. Let me read that again. The kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible through the obedience of God's people. Now, one of the reasons why this encourages me is because I'm probably like you. Where we live our lives, we obey God, we do the things that we do, we wear all the hats that we're supposed to wear, and we look around at our lives and think, what difference is it making? It doesn't seem to be making any difference at work. It doesn't seem to be making any difference whether I obey God or I don't obey God. But that little glimpse of what it says about obedience communicates the importance and the reality of it. Because whether we realize it or not, Every time that we obey God in what he writes, no matter what's happening, however dark or however dismal things might look, as we obey God in the environment and what we do or say, God shows himself for that moment. In that situation, it's revealed to everyone present. You know, I said it a couple of Sundays ago, how here it is, people that don't read the Bible, the way that they know and learn about it, is by watching us. That's what we see. The fact that there's another king, the fact that there's another kingdom in this world that we are part of, that should keep us from being discouraged, even when we feel like our life isn't really making a difference. So the sermon that Jesus gives is written to Christians. And it's not a recipe to how to live a generally moral life and then one day get to heaven. Unfortunately, that's the prevailing view of many people who haven't read the Bible, who haven't read the introductory verses into this, into the Sermon on the Plain. Something else I've always marveled at. Just as this direction is to us as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, when those who don't follow Jesus, who are not believers, hate or revile us, then why are we surprised? I mean, they don't abide by the same rules that we do, right? So when Jesus gives us this warning in this next section, uh, we shouldn't be so shocked when it happens to us. As we look at this direction, now we know who it's written to and a little bit of the background that's there because it tells us in verse 20, as he does his sermon on his mount, he also declares this sermon to a hungry crowd, spiritually hungry, hungry for healing, hungry for the power of God. Let's continue in verse 20. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, blessed are you poor? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now. You shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you. And when they exclude you. And revile you. And cast out your name as evil. For the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. So let's break this down a bit. Here Jesus gives the Beatitudes as he's laying them out. The foundation and the understanding of these Beatitudes is found in verses 22 and 23. Again, 
Jesus is not speaking, uh, all things being equal, uh, that it is preferable to be poor, hungry, and hated, as opposed to being prosperous, adequately fed, and loved in the world. That's not the point that he's making here. Remember, Jesus is speaking to us as his disciples. He speaks to us about four things that are very much the poor Christian's place in being a follower of Jesus Christ. In human history, the fallen and in this fallen world, these four things, excuse me, involve poverty, involve hunger, involve weeping and persecution. The point that Jesus is making is not that these things are a blessing in and of themselves, but that these things are a blessing because of our loyalty to him. And if the world treats us like this, whatever part of the world we live for, we need to live for him. And we can expect this being one of his disciples. So notice here in verse 22, it says, For the Son of Man's sake... Speaking of himself, in other words, when we receive this kind of treatment for our loyalty of following him, then it's a blessing. He's telling us how much better off we are to be poor and hungry and persecuted and following Jesus than to have a life of comparative ease and not being part of his kingdom. That's what's meant by this blessing in it all. He says in verse 20, blessed are you poor? He doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are you poor. You see, Jesus is not saying that poverty is a blessing. He's not saying that at all. But historically, and not just historically, but all around the world, virtually every Christian in every nation, they deal and suffer these four things. Now, this isn't just a theory or something that's hypothetical. In many parts of the world, this is the Christian portion. This is their life. The Bible teaches that if we obey word, God's word, there's a prosperity that ensues in relation to it. No, now, I'm not going to start espousing prosperity doctrine or name it, claim it, or anything like that. Uh, but as we live it, it is the way that creation has been put together. It's how we cooperate with God's creation. It's how we've been made so that all things being equal, a Christian will prosper. But Adam, what about like North Korea or China or many of the Islamic countries in the world? So you're telling us that if we just obey the word of God, we'll be prosperous? Yes. Now, you may not have in the material realm, but the Christian life, because we are disciples of Jesus, whatever lack we may have, we are greatly blessed spiritually. I mean, all of us would like to have a little bit more, right? Sure. And that would be wonderful. But how rich are we that we're saved? How rich are we that we are forgiven our sins? How rich am I to have a personal relationship with God? How rich are we able to sing up here on the stage and worship him without fear of somebody breaking down the doors in order to come in and arrest each and every one of us because singing is illegal. Worshiping him is illegal. That may happen one day, but not this day. How blessed are we for longing for our Lord and our Lord's return in absolute confidence 
that one day we'll be in heaven. So even in the midst of poverty, even in the midst of being deprived, there's still a call for blessing. So the idea is it's better to be poor in this world and citizens of the kingdom of heaven than to be rich in this world and not know God. In verse 21, he states, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Here we have the promise that Christians who live a life of persecution against them, of sacrifice, of self-denial, was a part of God's fulfilling, his, their callings upon our lives as Christians in the world. Even so, we are going to be rewarded one day. Certainly, we're going to be rewarded at the marriage lamb, excuse me, the, the marriage supper of the lamb, following the rapture, or the rapture, Lamb, lapsure, I don't know. You know, the last time I tried walking on water, I got wet. Not perfect. But God willing, we're going to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. See, we as Christians here in the United States, we have the incredible privilege of having a Christian heritage within this country. But the Bible is read around the entire world. But here's the reminder. That whatever our part may be in terms of hunger in this life, it's the full glory of heaven that awaits us. And that's a beautiful thing to internalize in each and every one of our lives. We are so focused on the materialistic culture that we live in, the judging our weights and our importance, assessing things based on physical and material items that sometimes, even as Christians, we can forget how truly blessed we are and that all of that could be taken away from us. Which brings us to our second point. You are blessed. You are blessed. The poor are blessed. The hungry are blessed. Never forget you are blessed. Verse 21 also states, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is a reference to the emotional toll that this world takes upon us, each and every one of us as Christians. I mean, just take a look at the inner cities. You see the breakdown there, the homeless, and you know, they just don't figure out that drugs and alcoholism are a problem, and that maybe drugs aren't such a victim victimless crime after all. But we see so much pain. We see so much suffering. Lives being destroyed unnecessarily. All on the basis of those kind of sins. And we know that their lives could change if they would just go ahead and turn towards Jesus. But they don't. They don't turn. Yet so many fall emotionally. And that weight is upon each and every one of our hearts and our minds that are planted in heaven. But this place, this strange place, because we're strangers here. Remember, we're all pilgrims, right? And all those tragedies that we see create that type of weeping. It's not outward, and if it's not outward, then it's certainly inward as we feel the weight of the world pressing upon us. Then we see in verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out, cast out your name as evil. It's one thing when we read the verses on this page 
And it's another to be in that place where our portion as Christians within our families, within our workplaces, within our entire nation, the world, as we see these things happening for the Son of Man's sake, the persecution for simply being a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to be careful as we think as Christians. Christians are, well, as the King James Version describes, a peculiar people. 1 Peter 2.9 states, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I won't ever argue that as Christians we are a peculiar people. Some of us a little more peculiar than others. But we have to be careful that with this peculiarity that we are being persecuted because we are being like Christ in these situations. Not just for simply being odd or an odd Christian. You know, when I was in high school, it was funny. Um, the individuals that I hung out with, my, my posse, my crew, we were a peculiar <laughs> type. You see, we didn't have friends from a specific clique. We had friends that were on the football team, friends that were cheerleaders. We had friends that were the drug users and friends that were musicians and the smart people as well. But along those lines, we would do some pretty crazy stuff. But I remember one time this one young lady, and she was peculiar, came up to my buddy and she goes, you're not weird. You just act weird so that you get attention. See, I'm weird. Okay, go ahead. Go off in your weirdness. Be proud about that. <laughs> right. But as Christians, we can be a peculiar people. Now, when Luke gets into verse 24 through 26, this is one of the things that makes this sermon different from the Sermon on the Mount. He brings out four woes. These are to include the Beatitudes, but these woes were not found in the Sermon on the Mount. So verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for, this, for, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So if we look at this progression of woes, what he's talking about here is warnings to us as Christians. Achieving wealth, achieving comfort, pleasure, and popularities, but by means of compromising the word of God. You see, there's nothing wrong when God goes ahead and he brings these things into our lives. That is, when we are not living a life of compromise. But what it's talking about here is giving us a warning as Christians. We're not to compromise God's word or our relationship with him in order to gain these things. See, blessings are fine. And God gives us those. But what we see here in these woes is that counterpart. It is the woeful life, and it's good to look at them, each and every one of those dangers, and ask ourselves, Lord, are these becoming part of my life 
as a Christian? We need to ask ourselves, are we compromising God's word in our lives today? Jesus speaks here to those who refuse to give up everything that is required in order to follow him and be a disciple and walk faithfully with him. In verse 24, it states, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, the only wealth that such a person will know will be here in this life. There will be no reward in heaven for a life of compromise and no reward in heaven for hoarding all the wealth for ourselves. Verse 25 states, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. In other words, they will hunger on the day in heaven when faithfulness for being a Christian and living a Christian life and those services are rewarded. They will hunger because of their compromises they made in this life. Verse 25 goes on and says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This refers again to the Christian who compromises their Christian witness for the sake of seeking pleasure, of seeking fun. And Jesus says, now, not just some little pastor like me, okay, but Jesus says that that's going to end one day with sorrow and regret. And his last warning here in verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now, you don't want this kind of popularity that speaks well of you. Sure, we want a few people to go ahead and speak well of us, right? But, you see, when it says here, everybody speaks well of us, then that's usually an indication that we've compromised God's word in our lives. So if everybody is speaking well of us, something's wrong. Paul said something very similar to Timothy when he wrote to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. As Christians, we will suffer persecution. We will be hated. We will be reviled. So again, I don't understand why Christians think that it's going to be rainbows and unicorns when we name the name of Christ. Evil men are out there gunning for each and every one of us just simply because we name his name. Now, when, if I were to go ahead and come to church and speak my Christianese and then go to work and start cursing up a storm, and then I go to Lowe's, and I dim my Christian light just a little bit more, and then when I go to the Super Bowl party, and here it is, I'm working the room because I want everybody to go ahead and like me, and that's a strong addiction within itself. I mean, we all want to be liked, right? Of course. But if I want everybody to speak well of me, then Jesus says, it's a woe. Now, we're about to come to verse 27. I mentioned this word, verse last week, and it's probably one of the most challenging. I get that we can be poor in spirit, that we can be hungry, and we'll be hated by men for the Son of Man's sake. But the next one, this just might be a bridge too far. Shall we see what it says? Verse 27. 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you. You see, this part of the sermon, this is when we look at this verse and we say, that's it. This is impossible. Nobody can take this seriously. I mean, nobody can live like that. Nobody can do that. And I'd say you'd be right. We argue and say to ourselves, this is all just an ideal that it should be some kind of a creeping our way towards as Christians. But with no realistic thought of actually living this in our lives, this side of heaven. I believe too many of us read this like a Proverbs. It's in one ear and out the other. He wants this sermon, Jesus wants this sermon to truly just enter into our hearts. He's dropped dead serious about this. And I preach to myself, and I would have the tendency to dismiss it rather than look and say, Lord, I think that this looks impossible to me. And it is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. And that isn't always in my Christian life. I want it to be. I want every part of this sermon to mark my life. You have to do this for me. It's no longer me. And I don't want to put this in the impossible column anymore. So I'm going to put my faith and my trust in you, Lord. Verse 27 says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. The word love here is agape. That's the Holy Spirit love. And only he provides the love our enemies require in order to go ahead and overpower this. The spirit that needs to be inside of us, that needs to pour through each and every one of our lives in order to love our enemies. You see, we don't love our enemies because they're lovable. (laughs) We love them because we have a desire to be like God in representing him before them to Not only our neighbors are we supposed to love, but to those who hate us. We're supposed to do good things. Well, if you thought loving your neighbor was hard enough within itself, and that being an extra impossible apart from the Spirit, I mean, we want to be growing in these things, right? We want to be growing in our Christian walk. We're never going to be exactly like Christ in this life. But to realize that God is willing to do a work in my spirit and so that we can be an ambassador, a good ambassador for Christ that will bring me to a place where I will actually love my neighbors and I will do good and I will love my enemies and do good to those that hate me. And that brings us to our third point. Be an ambassador of Christ. Be an ambassador for Christ. Now, the definition of an ambassador is this, an official envoy, a diplomatic agent of the highest rank, accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or an authorized representative or messenger. Someone appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. Remember I said we're all pilgrims here. It is just a temporary assignment for us here in this world. That's what we are. So be an ambassador for Christ. Then he said in verse 28, 
Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. So not only are, to we, are, are we to retaliate, excuse me, to further, <laughs> not only are we to refrain from, too many R's, <laughs> refrain from further retaliation against people that come against us verbally, but we're to speak blessings. We're to speak peace. We're to speak grace right back to them and then pray for those who mistreat us. Now, that's probably going to be the easiest thing to do out of the four things that we were just told, right? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who use you. Are you kidding me, Adam? Love your enemies? I think the whole just bless those who curse you thing, I got to get that down first. When somebody comes up to you, hey, you such and such and so and so, right? May God bless you. <laughs> you took the last package of toilet paper, you jerk. I'll pray for you. You see, one of the things that's nice is when we're dealing with people like this, when we want to talk about people like this, we can take them to the Lord who can give us that kind of counsel that can remind us of the eternal perspective that makes this all worth doing. God reminds us that this life is not the only life and that we are going to know or enjoy that there are things on the other side. For all of this, we will be rewarded. Then he says in verse 29, to him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, those of you who don't know Victor Marx, he is a multi-decade uh, martial artist. He actually holds the world's record for the first, the, the quickest gun disarm, okay? He's amazing. And somebody came up to him after he was evangelizing one time and said, hey, you say you're a Christian. But it says in here, in my Bible, that we're supposed to turn the other cheek. So you know what he did? He slapped him. <laughs> and then the guy was like, hey. So he went to go slap him again. And the guy was, come back. He goes, ah, you get it. You get it, don't you? It's hard, isn't it? Turning the other cheek. And I recognize that you shouldn't take this approach unless you're absolutely sure you can get away with it. <laughs> Now, I think too many of us think that we can get, you know, when we get struck or sucker punched, that we're supposed to give back the other cheek? Now, what is it that it's really saying here, okay? Think back to the Middle Ages when two knights would confront each other. What would they do? One would take off his gauntlet, his metal glove, and he would slap the other one. And it was an affront. It was an insult to that other knight. And then they would go ahead and combat would ensue. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Not an actual slap to the face, but it was an insult. So when we receive an insult, be prepared to offer the other cheek. Now, here it is. What, what it's saying here is that uh, just like in the 1700s, right? You take a glove out and slap the guy or you would slap the person with the back of the hand. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you an example, okay? Daryl, would you come up here, please? Now, now Daryl, trained martial artist, okay? He's, uh, 
I picked him very specifically. Okay, here it is. He is going to go ahead and slap me. Okay, you ready? Wait, wait, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, wait, one minute, one minute. Okay, um, remember, martial arts, 10%. 10%, okay, all right. He's going to go ahead and slap me now. Wait, 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 wait. Let me prepare myself. Let me just get ready. Okay, okay. Now we're, now we're ready, okay? So, turn the other cheek. Highly trained professionals. What? I said 10%. You see, it's that easy just to walk away. But it's against our culture because we get slapped in the face and it means that somebody insults us, that somebody wants to produce and, and it doesn't mean that they want to produce physical harm, but it's that shame and humiliation. So what should our response be? We turn our heads and we offer the other cheek. We give them the opportunity for them to insult us further. That's the kind of response that we should give. Now, I don't think that I need to explain that you shouldn't give an offense for an offense, right? It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. As ambassadors of Christ, the whole world operates like that, but we should be a different person. Somebody might look at it and say, well, Christians are going to look like a bunch of wimps. I mean, can we really take this stuff seriously? And I think you're dead wrong. Because when it comes to that slap, when it comes to that insult, when it comes to that moment... That person that just slapped you, that just insulted you, they took charge of the situation. And everybody watching knows it. But after you receive the insult and you offer the other cheek, you retake control of the situation that is far more powerful than the person who gave that affront to you. Everybody in the room will recognize it. They'll recognize it because truth is truth. Right is right. And when they see this, they'll see the different person that we are as Christians, as we are ambassadors, as we represent a different kingdom. So stand strong. Don't come down to their level so that we can be a good spiritual influence in the world. Amen? Verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. So Jesus' instructions here, forgive and forget. The commands of 29 and 30 are expressed in such absolute terms, they force the listener to reflect on them by contrasting them with the normal responses people would have to such injustices. As we wrap it up here, I'd like to bring it back to Benjamin Franklin. Back, bring him back into this picture. Because I believe he was one of the wisest of our forefathers. And he used to write a column in a newspaper called Poor Richard's Almanac. It sold about 10,000 copies a year, which would have been equivalent to about 3 million in our day. But the story goes like this. When Benjamin Webb, a friend of Franklin's, asked Franklin to loan him some money, Franklin declined to lend him the money. Rather, he offered to give Webb the needed funds, but under one condition, that Webb had to pay it forward and help a future person in need. 
Now, as novel as the story is, all Franklin was really doing was living by the principle laid out in verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. What kind of Christian do you want to be in your life today, this week, this month? One who expects men to hate you and exclude you, but you rejoice? The one who loves his enemies and does good to those who hate you? The one who, when insulted, turns the other cheek and shows what a kingdom man, what a kingdom woman looks like? Or the one who holds too tight to their own tunic? Make the choice today. Choose life, eternal life, and build those eternal rewards that Jesus wants for each and every one of us in heaven. Amen? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you so very much for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity just to be in your word. Lord, to get to know you a little bit closer. Lord, to get to know you a little bit more intimately. Lord, to read your word and understand what it is that we're supposed to do. And Lord, these things are a challenge. So we ask that the Holy Spirit, the one who indwells in each and every one of us, would manifest itself inside of us so that we could go ahead and obey your commands. We're not going to go ahead and hate our enemies. We're going to love them because your spirit says so. We're not going to go ahead and push back or fight back. We're going to offer that other cheek. Lord, these things are not easy. These things are challenges to each and every one of us as our flesh wants to rear up. So God, again, I pray that as we hear your words, truly, Lord, let us be the ambassadors for you. Let us represent you, God, in all things. And to you be all the glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.